Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Mm. Holy Father, we come before you in our wilderness. Lord, this world is broken, our lives are broken, and you, as we have heard over and over and over again this morning, are a rock in our wilderness. And we praise you for that, Lord. But we turn our hearts from you and seek after things that we desire. Lord, we need to be corrected. We need to be reminded of your goodness because we often forget. So do that now, Lord. Move among us. Let your word cut us today, not as a sword swung violently, but as a scalpel. And Lord, teach us more of who you are and more of what you've called us to do so that we can walk in your ways. May I decrease and may you increase. To this we pray, amen. So we're going to start off this morning with a little exercise. It's not too bad. If you had an appointment to meet face-to-face with God and you got to choose where you were to meet with God, where would you pick? Any place in the world meeting face-to-face with God. Close your eyes right now and just picture that place. Go ahead. You can close them. It's okay. You're meeting face-to-face with God. Look around you at the surroundings, the settings. Where are you? Just another few seconds. Okay, you can open up your eyes now. Now, no line, but raise your hand if when you close your eyes and pictured the place that you were to meet with God, you pictured a completely barren and desolate wilderness with no water, no vegetation, no food, and no shade. If that was you, raise your hand. Put it up big and high. Great, we got a few. Okay, great. But not many of us did pick a wilderness, did we? I'm sure we picked an oasis, a giant mountaintop, a beautiful forest, a lake. Not a wilderness. But yet time and time and time again in the Bible, where does God meet with his people? Where did God meet with Abraham? Where did he show himself to Hagar, to Jacob, to Joseph? Where did God speak to Moses? Was it in the palace or the wilderness? What about his people Israel? Where did he lead them after he took them out of Egypt? Or David, when he was fleeing from Saul and from one of his sons? Elijah, where did God meet with him? We've been going through the Gospel of John as a church. If you can remember back to John chapter 1, Who was the first witness that we heard from? A voice crying out in the where? The wilderness. And John the Baptist. And and after Jesus was baptized by John and was filled with the Spirit, where did the Spirit lead Jesus to? The wilderness. And during Jesus' years of earthly ministry. He went off and would pray, and the Bible says he frequented a specific place, and you guessed it. Where is it? The wilderness. Paul, when he's converted, 
Where does God lead him for three years to prepare him for ministry? The wilderness. Faith family, if we fail to recognize that God wants to meet us in the wilderness, in the midst of our brokenness of this world and in our lives, then we can miss meeting God for a divine appointment. And in Psalm 81, first we're going to see that life is a wilderness. And now you might be wondering, where am I getting that? Where does it say in Psalm 81 that life is a wilderness? I don't see the word desert, and I don't see the word wilderness. Well, it's right there at the beginning. Not the word wilderness, but this picture of it. Psalm 81 describes this call that the psalmist has for his audience to remember the wilderness. It begins with the call for the people of Israel to celebrate a specific festival. But this wasn't just any festival. This was the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, as you might have heard it called. Look at verse 3. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. You see, in the Jewish calendar, there is only one month out of the year when the trumpet was blown on the first day of the month, the new moon, and on the 15th day of the month, the full moon, signifying a feast day. And that was the seventh month, or the month of Tishri, as it was called. And on the full moon of the month of Tishri, the Feast of Booths began. And so the psalmist is calling for the people to rise up, to go to Jerusalem, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths is all about God's people gathering together for a, once a week during the year and living in makeshift tents called booths or tabernacles. And God specifically ordained this booth-dwelling feast to remind the people of Israel that for 40 years, he led them through the wilderness. And just like how Israel's wilderness wanderings and the booths that they dwelled in during those 40 years were temporary, so too are our bodies in this life. Our time here on earth in the wilderness of this life is temporary. The Feast of Booths teaches us that life is a wilderness. But in the Bible, the wilderness is not just a real place. It was very, very real. But the wilderness also serves as a beautiful, beautiful picture. A picture of this life and of all the difficult times that we face in life. And the Bible calls us to view our lives through the lens of the wilderness. A picture of the brokenness, of the pain and the suffering that we all experience in life. A picture of times when tragedy strikes. When you receive a, a bad diagnosis from the doctor. When a family member or a good friend suddenly passes away. When you lose a job. When depression and anxiety overwhelm you. When you can't pay the bills that month and you don't know when you're going to get your next meal. Psalm 81 shows us that life is a wilderness. And while that may seem bleak, there is good news. Good news even in the midst of the wilderness. 
Because Psalm 81 also shows us that God is in the wilderness with us. Now, the wilderness isn't the only place to meet God, but it is the ideal place to meet God. Why is that? Why is it ideal to meet God in the wilderness than, say, at an oasis, on our terms, when our lives are picture-perfect? Because the wilderness means that we can't boast. In the wilderness, everything is stripped away. Everything that we have built up in this life is completely undone, and you are completely dependent upon God. Let me ask you, you've probably seen some of those survival shows on TV, and and you've kind of been, ah, I could do that, that's pretty easy. Maybe you, you were the opposite, and you're like, there is no way I can do that. But how long do you think you could survive in a desert wilderness? Just a day? Two hours? <laughs> Three minutes? Yeah. Where do you think you're going to find food? Where are you going to find water? Where are you going to find shelter? After God had delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt and had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years, millions of people wandering around the desert for 40 years, Where'd they find food? Where'd they grow food? Where'd they find water? They wouldn't have made it a week in the wilderness, let alone 40 years were it not for the providential hand of God leading them and caring for them every step of the journey. And because of the nature of the wilderness, the people of Israel got to experience God in a new way, a way that no one has since. God showed himself in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. God provided for them clothes and sandals that did not wear out for those 40 years. He gave them manna from heaven, water from a rock that we'll read about soon. And God showed himself in unspeakable ways in the wilderness. As verse 7 says, I answered you, I love this, in the secret place of thunder at Mount Sinai. But here is the real kicker about the wilderness. Just like Israel, even in the face of his amazing deliverance and providence, we fail to trust God over and over and over again. At the end of verse 7, it says, I tested you at the waters of of Meribah. All right, so we're going to take a look at the testing of the waters of Meribah. Stick a bookmark if you have it uh, here in Psalm 81 and turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17 is on page 59 in your Red Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to be in the first few verses. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. So here in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 4, we see that the people of Israel are grumbling against Moses and against God because they're thirsty. And and the word quarreling, grumbling, 
It's more than just that. They were saying, God, we wish we never knew you. We wish we were back in Egypt, because there at least we could get food, at least we could get water. And Moses pleads with God for him to intervene. And this is how the Lord responds. Verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people of Israel will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? How foolish for the people of Israel to even think that. Is the Lord among us or not? Did they have amnesia? Did they forget who this was? This is Yahweh who led them out of their 430-year slavery of, in Egypt with his signs and wonders. He parted the Red Sea for them to escape the Egyptian army and closed it behind them. He led them through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. Just take your eyes and glance at chapter 16, the page right next to you. The people of Israel were so hungry and God dropped food from the sky for them, manna. You can't go buy manna down at Market Basket, can you? And yet, here they are, just the very next chapter, and they're a little thirsty. And they're saying, is God among us or not? Ah, faith family. It is so easy to notice the speck in the eye of the people of Israel and not even notice the log that is sticking out of ours. Because like the people of Israel in the wilderness, we can fail to trust God in the difficult times of life over and over and over again. Even though God has delivered us from the slavery, not in Egypt, but of our sin. And God has restored us and redeemed us. And we can fail to see how he is working and moving, even in the most difficult times. Now, back to verse 5 here in Exodus 17, because this is a really rich passage that we need to take a look at quickly. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. All right, pause here with me. Imagine being Moses at this point, okay? Everything that you've been through in your life, God leading you in the wilderness for 40 years before this, using you as an instrument to deliver his people out of Egypt, walking through the wilderness with these people, and they're grumbling every step of the way. And Moses is probably thinking at this point, well, this is it. God's patient. God is loving. He is kind. But this people is so stubborn, and they are quarreling, 
and God's now going to destroy them. The people have quarreled with God over and over and over again, and essentially right now they're saying here in this passage, God, it would be better if we didn't know you. We'd be better off in Egypt. We'd be better off as slaves than knowing you. But what does God command Moses to do? He says, separate yourself from the people, you and the elders, but, you know, don't forget that staff with which you struck the Nile. You know, the staff through which I showed just a a tiny morsel of my power and executed judgments against Egypt. Moses is probably thinking, all right, we're separating ourselves, and God is going to strike the people of Israel. And God does strike something, but it's not the people. What is it? The rock. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. (laughs) Just stand in awe with me at the patience and the mercy and the grace displayed by our God. The people of Israel deserved to be struck, not the rock. And God didn't just strike the rock as a substitute. But what happened when God struck the rock? Out of the rock came water. Out of the rock came life. Life in the midst of the wilderness. Rather than striking the people of Israel for their sins, God struck the rock, and it became the very source of life for his people Israel. Faith family, if we haven't already made this connection in our minds, Paul makes it for us very plainly. He writes this to the church in Corinth. Just listen to these words. For they, the people of Israel, drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Just like how God struck the rock in the wilderness, God struck Jesus on the cross. The Israelites deserved to be struck for their sin, but God struck the rock instead so that the Israelites could live. Our sin deserves death. God struck Jesus in our place, and in turn, he becomes the spring of new life for all who repent and believe in him. If you're here this morning and you haven't repented and believed in Jesus Christ, you haven't received this cool, refreshing drink of water in this barren wilderness, oh, what are you waiting for? There is refreshment. There is life in Christ. And if you don't know how to receive this new life, come up and ask one of us elders. Ask the friend who brought you. Ask nearly anyone here. I'm sure we would all love to share with you how to receive this new life in Christ. Hmm. So now turn back with me to Psalm 81. It's on page 492. And we're going to be concluding our, our time in Psalm 81. Notice with me in Psalm 81, in between verses 7 and 8, there's one word that's kind of off to the right side, italicized. It's a little five-letter word called selah. And this calls us to pause and to reflect at what was just said. So let's do that now. Pause and reflect with me that Jesus is our rock in the wilderness who was struck for us on our behalf so that we can have new life in him.
Now, so far, we have seen that life is a wilderness, and we've seen that God is in the wilderness. Praise him. But now in verses 8 through 16, we will see that God longs to satisfy us in the wilderness. Verse 10, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. God promises to fill our mouths if we open them wide. So how do we open up our mouths wide so God can fill them? How do we allow God to satisfy us in the wilderness? Notice with me at the end of verse 8. There's one simple little two-letter word, if. If you would but listen to me. That means that in order to be satisfied by God in the wilderness, we need to obey his commands. It's conditional to receive satisfaction in him. And in this psalm, God lays out three things for us to do so that he may satisfy us in the wilderness. First, we see that God calls us to worship him corporately. And we find that at the beginning of this psalm, back with the Feast of Booths. It was a week-long feast held each year when Israel was called to gather themselves together, go up as one nation, one people, in one place, Jerusalem, to celebrate God for delivering them through a new year and delivering them through the wilderness. Now, this was hard work. It's like going on vacation when you have a family, gathering everything together. You're going off for a week. You have to have money to make it along the way. You have kids screaming in the back seat. Now, they didn't have back seats. They were probably just a few steps behind them. And then you're sleeping in an uncomfortable place. Here, you're actually sleeping in a booth, this weird three-sided tent-looking thing. It was hard work to leave behind everything that you were doing, to pay extra money. And it wasn't guaranteed that you had a good harvest that year. And so it's a lot of faith, a lot of trust in God. But God calls you to go, and so you go. Likewise, I, I know it is hard to come every single week to worship God. It is hard to come on weeks when there is pain in your life, when tragedy strikes, when depression and anxiety overwhelm you, and you just want to stay in bed. Or you just want to go out and work. You want to put all the things in your mind behind you. You want to stay busy. You want to make extra money to provide. But God calls us together to worship him. Oh, it was amazing to be able to just, you guys should try it sometime. Just, I know some of you love to sit in the back, but come to the front sometimes and just listen and hear the singing and the worshiping of God. Even in the midst of the wilderness of our lives, we're all going through different things. We're all going through different trials. We're all in our own wilderness, but we're all in this wilderness together at the same time. And God calls us to come and worship him. And so we do. And it's not always easy it's not always pretty, but we love God, and he loves us, and he calls us to worship him together. Second, God calls us to listen to him. If you would but listen to me. Now, the problem here is not that God is not talking. The problem here is that we are not listening. Either we have tuned God out, and allow the distractions of this life to 
drown his voice out, or, or we just fill our lives with so much busyness that we can't recognize his voice. So how do we listen to God? We need to take a page out of the life of Elijah. When he fled to the wilderness and God wanted to speak to him, Elijah silenced himself. And we need to stand in anticipation of God's voice and silence our lives and ourselves before God so that when he speaks, we can discern him and we can hear his voice. Our hearts need to be tuned to his to receive what he has for us. And we can listen to him and we can obey him. In this stillness of the morning, when, when you are alone and you have your Bible opened, in, in the solitude maybe of a prayer closet or an empty room where you're able to kneel before God in prayer, or in, in the silence of your car on your way to work, we need to still our weary souls before God so that we can listen to his tender, loving, and wise voice. And third, God calls us to surrender our idols. Verse 9, There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. Now, we like to think that we've advanced so much over the last few thousand years that we wouldn't be like these silly Israelites and the people around them who would create these gods out of wood and precious metals and bow down and worship to them. No, we're not like them. Instead, we've advanced so much that we've created idols like success and health and wealth and prosperity, pleasure, family, friends, comfort. I'm sure you guys can add some more to that list. I know I can. And now what happens when trials come? You know, we, we might find some temporary satisfaction in these things when everything's picture perfect. But what happens when trials come? Do these idols stand the test? Can these idols sustain us in the wilderness? No. They cannot feed us. They cannot give us water. They cannot give us life in the wilderness. We all have a God-sized hole in our hearts, and the only thing that can fill it is God himself. If we try to cling to the idols that we manufacture in the wilderness, we're simply left alone, and we're left without hope. There is only one rock in the wilderness, and only he can satisfy our soul's deepest desires and our deepest longings. Now, what happens when we don't seek shelter, when we don't find satisfaction in God, when we don't surrender our idols, and we don't listen to him, and we don't worship together corporately? What happens? In this verse, we see that God judges his people. And how does he judge them? Verse 12 says this, So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Now, upon first hearing that, you may think, oh, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> that's great. That doesn't sound like a judgment at all. I get to do what I want. Where's the harm in that? Hmm. One of the worst punishments that we can receive from God in this lifetime is when he allows us to have our own way. You want to walk according to your own stubborn heart, your own counsel, what you think is best and what you think is right? Guess what? God may just let you. 
The Puritan theologian John Trapp said this in his commentary on Psalm 81 on this verse. He said, I left them, I love this imagery, as a ship without a rudder, as a horse without reins, to go whither they would and do what they would. This is a fearful judgment. Picture that, a, a ship in a storm without a rudder. You on the back of a horse that has just been spooked without reins. How long do you think you would last? What would your life be like if God let you have your own way? Second, we see that this breaks God's heart. Verse 13 says this, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Now, you, you could hear this in more of an angry voice. I, I myself kind of hear it in the voice of a lamenting father, a, a father who is watching his prodigal son run off with his share of the inheritance, fully knowing what destruction it would lead to. And when we fail to listen to God's voice in the wilderness, I think it breaks his heart more than anything else. Because God is a loving father, and I know that can be hard for some of us to hear who haven't had loving fathers, but God is one, and he desires nothing but the best for us. And he is all-knowing, and so he knows and desires all that is best for us. And we see that God longs for us to be satisfied in him, and in order to do that, we need to be open to him, to open up our mouths to him so that he can fill them, that he can satisfy us. So what does God long to satisfy us with? Uh, what substance does God long to satisfy us with in this wilderness? Now, we've already seen that God being the rock, the rock was struck for us, and that water, living water, came out new life in the midst of this wilderness. So we have water. He longs to satisfy us with that. But God in his grace and mercy desires to satisfy us with more than just new life, more than just living water, as if that's not enough already. God longs to spoil us in the wilderness. Verse 16, he says this, with the finest of wheat, now, throughout the Bible, there are two different types of grain referenced. You have your barley on one hand, and you have your wheat on the other hand. Now, barley was considered to be the lesser of the two, the, the poor man's grain, if you would. But what does God desire to give us in the wilderness? Wheat, the rich man's grain. And not just any wheat, but with the finest of wheat, now, if you've been stumbling through the wilderness and it's been days since you've last eaten anything and someone comes up to you and offers you bread, are you going to care whether it's made out of barley or whether it's made out of wheat? No, of course not. You are just going to eat it as fast as you can and say thank you. But God desires to give us the finest of wheat. God desires to give us the best of the best even in the wilderness. Why would God do that? Because that's who God is. He's an awesome father who knows exactly what we need, exactly when we need it, 
and he wants to give us nothing but the best. So in the wilderness, we see that God gives us living water. He gives us the finest of wheat. So now you're in the wilderness, and, and you have water, and you have food, and you're not just surviving, but you're starting to thrive a little bit. But there is something more, something surprising, something completely unexpected that God desires to give us. Honey from the rock. Verse 16, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Even in the midst of a barren wilderness, you don't expect to find honey in a rock, do you? But there is honey in the rock. Even in the wilderness, God surprises us with his grace and his mercy. Now, honey in the Old Testament was the sweetest food that they had. Nothing else compared to it. So in essence, the psalmist is saying that even in the midst of the wilderness, even when things are at the worst of the worst, God longs to surprise you with a sweetness that nothing in this world can compare to. No other accomplishments in this life, no amount of money in the bank account, no other relationships that we have, no amount of comfort that we can feel, no perfect bill of health can compare to this indescribable sweetness found when you trust in Jesus. And when is sweetness its most potent? When is sweetest, sweetness its most potent? When your mouth is bitter. So it's a beautiful picture. Even when our lives are the most bitter, even when everything else is going bad, even when we're stumbling through the wilderness, God promises not just to sustain us, but to give us a sweetness unlike anything else that this world has to offer. There is honey in the rock. But the beauty of the wilderness has one final gem for us. The wilderness shows us very plainly, unlike anything else in this world, that something is very wrong. That something is very wrong. We can't live in a place with no food, no water, and no shelter. The brokenness of this world is all around us, and the brokenness of our bodies will one day consume us, and we will pass away, every single one of us. We are all in the wilderness. The wilderness shows us this, that God created us for the garden, not for the wilderness. When God spoke everything into existence, where did God place man? Not the wilderness, no, no, no. He placed us in the garden with him. And when man sinned and we were kicked out of the garden into the wilderness, and we have been wandering in that wilderness ever since, but praise God that the wilderness is not the end for those of us who repent and believe in Jesus. You see, because God's story starts with a garden, but how's it end? With God restoring creation back to its original design, with a new heaven and a new earth and a new garden. Praise God, the wilderness is not our home. Like Israel being led by God through the wilderness and living in booths, we are just wandering through this world, but the promised land lies ahead of us. 
So what will you do in the wilderness? Will you be like the rest of the world and craft idols to your own desire and try to cling to them as you stumble through this broken world, even though they don't bring satisfaction, even though they don't bring sweetness? Or will you instead run to the rock who promises new life and an indescribable joy even in the midst of this brokenness? Will you run to Jesus and find rest and joy for your weary soul? Let's pray. Hmm. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. It is as true today as it was the day it was written. We praise you, Lord, that uh, you are our rock in the wilderness. You give us shade, you give us water, food to sustain us, and honey to give us sweetness, just a, a glimmer, a taste of new glory to come. And Lord, we pray that as we wander through this wilderness, Lord, you will allow us to listen to you, to continue to meet together and praise and worship you and to cast our idols down at your feet. But Lord, we know we will fail time and time and time again. And we thank you that your grace is sufficient, that Jesus walked through the wilderness of this world. He passed the test where we failed and we can lean on him every single time and find grace and mercy in him. Lord, we praise your name. May we be people that as we walk through this wilderness, not just receive and open up our mouths so that you can satisfy, sustain us, and give us sweetness, but that we can be that sweetness to others. And Lord, we pray this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.